You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Oh, hey, if I haven't had the chance to meet you guys, my name, oh yeah, you guys can go ahead and be seated. My name's uh, Josh, and I'm the uh, college pastor here at Midtown. I'm super excited to be able to speak to you guys and open up the Sermon on the Mount. And so we, uh, Jake, kicked us off last week with um, a message on the kingdom of God. And so, and kicking off our series, Sermon on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount. Very creative. I like it. A plus on creativity for us. Um, I personally did not come up with the title. I wish I did. Uh, but, but Jake did, and it's great. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount, or as Jake talked about, essentially Jesus' kingdom manifesto. When Jesus wanted to talk about what his world was like and what he was creating, he talked about what he talks about in Matthew 5 through 7. He essentially declares that this is a new way to be human. And what Jesus was bringing to a table was actually a whole new way, a whole new paradigm in which to see the world. And when Jesus wanted to talk about how to see the world and how to live, he actually starts here in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and he talks about how are we supposed to view people who actually has worth, who actually has value, and in the words of Jesus, who is actually blessed. Uh, but before we dig into that, I'm going to pray for us real quick, and uh, then we'll start. Jesus, thank you so much uh, for this community. God, a community that I think reflects you well in this world. And I'm just so thankful for the love and the kindness and the generosity that's been shown to my family uh, through this community. God, thank you for, this, for your word, God, and that, what, Jesus, what you're bringing into the world is something completely different and something completely new. God, I pray that we would see the newness of your message, God, that it would be afresh to us today, God, that we would see what you're bringing in the world and just how radical and subversive it was, and that it would speak to our hearts uh, in just significant ways, God, and that we would see things differently after going through this series, that we would see things the way that you do and not the way that our culture does. God, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen. All right, so when I first came on staff, um, Jake Box and I, like, we didn't know each other well. Um, we had met a few times um, in some few different places. Uh, we actually, I actually did, a, I interviewed him for something that I was doing when I was in Florida at the time, and so that was kind of the most significant interaction we had ever had, but we bonded pretty, pretty quickly over three things that we had an affinity for. The first is Hill Country Bible Church. If you don't know what Hill Country Bible Church is, you'll know more in a few weeks because um, we're going to talk about them a little bit. But Hill Country Bible Church is the church that started in Midtown. And so they've actually planted or started 30 churches here in the city. And we're one of those churches. But Jake and I, a lot of our formative years, more of his formative years than mine, but several of our formative years were actually shaped at Hill Country. And it really shaped the way that we thought. And so... Uh, we both had that connection with one another um, and the people there as well. The second is LeBron James. Um, if you know me, you know I love LeBron. I did not know that Jake loved LeBron when I took the job, but it didn't hurt when I found that out. Uh, we have a difference of opinion of whether, he, whether he's the greatest of all time or second greatest of all time, uh, but it's okay that Jake's wrong. Um, but yeah, we had an affinity for LeBron. In fact, like us and like 10 of our buddies went to go see LeBron play in San Antonio. Unfortunately, he got hurt like the day before, so we didn't get to see him play, but yeah, it was a good game. Uh, the Lakers won. It was awesome. Sorry, Spurs fans. Um, and then the third thing that we have an affinity for, and uh, this is a little bit more rare than the other two, is Big Brother. 
How many of you guys, anybody ever watched Big Brother or Survivor or any reality TV? Okay. Okay, a few people with reality TV. So Big Brother, like all reality TV is trash, but we love it and we get sucked into it. But Jake and Krista, like, have been super into Big Brother for a long time. Kari and I, it's like our guilty pleasure. Oh, well, it's guilty for me. I don't know if it's guilty for my wife. But, um, but yeah, but in that show, they have this phrase that they say every show. It's this tagline of the show that Julie Chen Moonvest says. And it's expect the unexpected. And I think that when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it's a perfect tagline for what Jesus is saying here and what the kingdom of God is like. Expect the unexpected. And I think it's a perfect tagline because it's what we talked about before. This is a whole new way to see the world. It's a whole new vision for how to live life. And it's a whole new perspective on how to see people and their value. Tim Keller, in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, that he wrote this last year during COVID and uh, when he got terminal cancer, he had this chapter in this book, um, Hope in Times of Fear, called Subversive Hope, um, where he discusses the kingdom of God and just how countercultural and unexpected the message of the kingdom was the kingdom was in Jesus' day. And he says this, In Jesus' day, the message of the kingdom contradicted all the world's categories. In our time, the Christian faith is seen as something traditional rather than radical and disruptive. Nothing could be further from the truth. Properly understood, the message of God's kingdom will subvert the dominant beliefs of our own culture. The main reason for this misunderstanding is that the Bible is seen as a series of stories about how we can save ourselves through moral living. It is not seen for what it is, a single coherent story about how Jesus Christ saves the world through the great reverse. And we're going to spend much of this morning actually unpacking a lot of what this talks about. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And Keller starts off with this, with this statement, right, the sentence. He says, in Jesus' day, the message of the kingdom contradicted all the world's categories. And that word all is key here. The kingdom of God turns everything upside down. And it's, that's not hyperbole. It's like that's literally true. And if we don't understand that part of things, that the kingdom of God, uh, it contradicts all the world's categories, then we don't get what Jesus is talking about. And it's not only true in Jesus' day, it's true in our day as well. But in Jesus' day, let's talk about that. The world's expectations in that day, the Jewish expectation, is that a Messiah would come and he would come once. But Jesus comes and he announces something different, that there's going to be a Messiah himself and he's going to come twice. And this first time, something happens that's completely unexpected and therefore completely overlooked during that time. A Messiah who comes twice comes the first time not in strength, but in weakness. He doesn't come uh, by power or by force, but he comes to serve. Which is why in the perspective of the world, Jesus is bringing what we traditionally call the upside-down kingdom. The Messiah, this king, comes in such a way that he reverses the values of the world. He comes in weakness and service, not in strength and force. And there's no better example of this than the cross, right? In the kingdom of God, winning looks a lot like losing. And the cross in its day, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, the cross was the symbol of power in Rome at the time. For them, it was an instrument of torture that was meant to inspire terror. It was, um, and people were crucified in order um, basically to display the imperial power of, that Rome had at the time. In their day, the cross was the symbol that Rome wins. 
Crucifixion sent a message. We, the Romans, are in control. Defy us and die a horrible death. Which is why like, it was so, such a fitting death for insurrectionists, right, and for slaves, and for rebels. Jesus takes this Rome, symbol of Rome's victory of power and dominance at the time and completely reverses its meaning for us today. By losing, by suffering the death of a slave, Jesus wins. In the words of Paul in Colossians 2.15, he says this, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, Jesus did, triumphing over them by the cross. That what was seen as power at that day, in the end, Jesus reverses that. And by looking, appearing like he's losing, he actually wins in the end. James Cone and the cross and the lynching tree, he says this um, about that. James Cone is the father of black liberation theology, um, a super powerful uh, theology within um, our own American culture. And he says this in the book. He says, the cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, and the last shall be first and the first last. The great paradox of the upside-down kingdom is that Jesus actually reverses everything. Again, weakness in the kingdom of God is strength. Losing is winning. And we can't miss this. And so I'm going to keep circling back around this, but this has essentially three implications for our lives and the way that we see the world. The first implication for us is that we enter the kingdom through the same upside-down pattern. That we don't enter the kingdom through this righteous moral living, right? We don't enter it through doing good things and proving ourselves to God. But we do it actually through the weakness of repentance. See, in the, spirit, in, in, in the kingdom of God, there are no spiritual resumes. There are no moral requirements to get in. The only requirement is that you admit that you can't do it on your own, right? That, you defeat, that, that you're defeated and there's nothing that you can do. The second thing that this has implications for is it actually, we have to rethink our relationship with power. So in our world, um, essentially the phrase, you guys have probably heard this phrase before, might makes right, right? If you have the power, if you have the strength, you're in control. And that's true. So from a very young age, we're told to desire and to pursue and to achieve power. And that can take on a bunch of different um, forms. But here's the ultimate problem with power as far as the way that we use it in the world. Power in our world ends up with someone always being oppressed and someone always being marginalized. And typically, almost always, I would say, it's usually the weak and the vulnerable in any culture and society. So in order for power to work, somebody has to be oppressed. In Jesus' day, right, it was the slaves, it was women, it was the Jewish people, right, in our day, we can pick a litany of things. I will not go into that. <laughs> I, I'm not that bold. But not in the kingdom of God. Our relationship with power is this. We live and we grow and we serve in this kingdom, not by taking power, but we follow Jesus by giving up power in order to forgive, in order to sacrifice, in order to love. If you guys remember, um, Jesus had this conversation with his disciples and they came to him and said, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? And then it's really this odd conversation where one of their mom, moms gets involved. It's like, 
kind of this proof that helicopter parents weren't like invented in the 21st century. Like they were, they were there in the first century too. Yeah, it's okay. You can laugh at that. It's good. Um, but then Jesus kind of interrupts his argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he says this um, to, his, to his disciples. He says, Jesus called them all together. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, right? They used their power for themselves. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And then Jesus, he turns this upside down. He goes, not so with you. And said, whoever wants to be great among you must first be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what Jesus does here is he flips everything in the world at its time on his head. And he says, hey, power, right? Control, authority does not have the final word, right? If we're going to be influencers in the world, it's going to come through service and weakness, not through strength and force. And I could talk about that for a long time, but I won't. But I will talk about this last point for a long time. And this last implication of the upside-down kingdom is we see the whole world differently. Therefore, we view people differently, and what makes people valuable? And what makes us valuable? And I believe that it's not unintentional that Jesus starts off with the Sermon on the Mount with these Beatitudes. I think he does this um, on purpose. And he does this because he wants to show us that the kingdom really does reverse all the values of the world. And he starts off with a list of people who are blessed. And it's not the people that we would expect. And so Jesus starts off, and I'm going to read again, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. He gathered up all these people, right? He gathered up the crowds on the mountainsides, and he began to teach them. He says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way as they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What an opening statement to his kingdom manifesto for Jesus, right? This is provocative. And Jesus says this, and he talks about this group of people who he says are blessed, but in the world's eyes, these people are anything but blessed. And so I think what we need to do is actually look at what Jesus means by this word blessed. Like, what does that mean, right? We have all these connotations that we bring to the table with this word. And so... and. One of the things that we need to understand is that blessed in this context in particular, typically we think of blessed, we think of divine favor, right? That's not what this word means here. This word here is this word makarios. We did a whole series on makarios a little while ago. So if you weren't here for that, go listen to it. It was great. So I'm not going to go rehash all of that. But essentially, this word makarios can mean um, the word happy or blessed or, um, or congratulations. It was really in that day, it was... This, um, this salutation, this greeting that you would have, right? When somebody had something happen in their life that was a good thing. And so you would say, you know, 
this word makarios in these kind of situations, like congratulations on the new baby, congratulations on the new job, on the new relationship. Hey, you got into grad school, you got into the school that you wanted, congratulations. That's really what this word means, makarios, bless. And I think in this context, what Jesus is saying is, hey, congratulations, you're in the kingdom of God. Like, welcome in. But then who does he welcome in? <laughs> he welcomes in, welcomes in the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who have little or nothing to offer in the world. Dallas Willard, in his book, um, The Divine Conspiracy, it's a great book on the Sermon on the Mount, he calls these people the spiritual zeros. Hey, these are the people that have nothing to bring to the table. He goes on and he says, hey, welcome in those who mourn. Those who mourn, like, and like this word, this idea of mourning is really this idea of like being overwhelmed with the sadness of life, right? Like we know what this is like going through COVID over this last year. So many of us have, have so much pain and sadness. And Jesus is saying, hey, welcome in. Blessed are the meek. And the guy that, um, one of the guys that we're using for this sermon series is a guy named John Mark Comer. And he talks about this idea of meekness. And like we talk, like to talk about it as this idea of like strength under control. And he's like, hey, that's a great like American idea. But really, like this, in this context, in this culture, in the, in the first century Jewish context, meek meant weak. These were the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. Jesus says, hey, you're going to inherit the earth. Welcome in. Then he goes, and the next one he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we like to turn that into like, hey, yeah, they desire after God. But really, righteousness just simply means like, hey, they long for a right relationship with God and with others. And you only long for a right relationship with God and others if you don't have one. These are people that are broken, right? Some by choices that they've made and some by choices that were made to them. And Jesus says, welcome in. And what Jesus is saying to these people is like, hey, you belong here. Like, I love you. You are fully accepted just the way that you are. You might be excluded and counted out by most, but not here. Here you have great value. Jesus places great value on those who the dominant culture have little value for. And so I want to talk a little bit about, um, I want to bring this in a little bit closer to the 21st century America, Western culture, right? I want to talk about what we value in our dominant culture here in America. And what we tend to value, as far as people goes, is we tend to value, we overly value the competent, the confident, and the successful American culture is dominated by what Richard Rohr calls the winner's script, or another way to put it is, is successism. Successism is this idea, um, is defined by this. It's a societal worship of success in a way that is damaging to the well-being and dignity of many citizens. So essentially an example of this would be the American dream, right? Like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This idea that everyone has equal opportunity here in America to be successful. If you just try hard enough and you do enough, then you can be successful, where upward mobility is the ultimate achievement and goal. We as Americans, our values, we are obsessed with these five things. Achievement, competition, progress, we're addicted to performance, 
and we long for upward mobility. If you look at like really how we find happiness, it's found in this, these ideas of success. When we're doing well, when life seems to be going well, we seem to be happy. And what ends up happening is whether we're aware of it or not, we tend to elevate other people who are successful. And we end up elevating them above others. And I want to talk about five traits that I think people in our culture really, they become successful, but they have one of these five things. They might have multiple ones. If you have multiple ones, you have a better chance of being successful. This is my list. I didn't get it from anybody else, so you can argue with it all you want. It's great. There's no scientific fact behind these, but these are just what I came up with. These five things, I think that you need to have at least one of these to be successful. The first one is intelligence, right? You have to have, you, you can, if you have a certain level of intellect, you can be successful in our culture. The second is talent, right? Um, you know, if you have a disproportionate amount of talent, you can be successful. LeBron James hit the genetic lottery, but he's also disproportionately talented in one area of his life, and therefore he's successful. Uh, you know, attractiveness, right? You can be really successful if other people find you attractive. My wife loves the challenge, and it's full of they're successful because they are attractive people, yeah? And um, I won't get too much into that one because that could get sticky. The, the fourth one is wealth, right? And wealth, like if you have money, you can be successful, particularly in America. And the fifth is networks, right? If you know the right people or you're born into the right family, like you can be, you can be successful, right? You can get ahead in life. Again, you only need one of those, but, but typically those are the things that we elevate in our culture. And our dominant culture tends to bow and to cater to these type of, types of people. And personally, at least for myself, I, I know I find myself tending to value these things within myself and within others, both subconsciously and also consciously in ways as well. But again, this isn't the case in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is nothing like this. Those at the margins are the ones that are actually elevated and valued and lifted up. I want you to think about this. Who actually follows Jesus in the first century? Like if you survey like all the stories in the, in the, in the gospels and Acts, who follows Jesus? Well, I'll, I'll give you a few. It's the marginalized in society, right? It's women and slaves. Those are the, the main people that came to faith in the first century, if you want to know. It was women and slaves, the people that everybody else devalued and counted out in society. Those, those people found good news in, in, in Jesus. The, the, the other ones were the, the uneducated, right? Like, this is how the disciples were known in Acts 4, right? These were unschooled fishermen, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. That's what it said. The uneducated. And then the last one was Paul. Paul is not those things, but we'll talk about Paul in a minute. Right, because I think he holds value in this conversation as well. But I want you to think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 27 uh, through 30. And he's writing about these people that came to faith in Corinth. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many uh, were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
So he's looking at these believers in Corinth, these people that he brought to faith, and he's going, hey, you bring nothing to the table, right? There's, there's, you, you are the foolish things of this world. In fact, earlier in here, he says, hey, the gospel is foolishness to the, to the, um, to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because the kingdom of God turns everything upside down. So let's look at who didn't follow Jesus in the first century. And it's essentially the privileged in the society at the time. The rich young ruler, right? We know that story. There's this rich young ruler who says, hey, Jesus, like, hey, can I follow you? He said, yeah, hey, give up everything. And the rich young ruler, he walks away sad. And Jesus goes, hey, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The Roman leaders, like, we see something, like we see a centurion come and, and come to Jesus, but for the most part, like, the Roman leaders, like, <laughs> they get intrigued, but they don't follow Jesus. They kill him. The Pharisees, the Pharisees, they're not following Jesus. In fact, in, in John 12, it says that many of them believed in him, but they didn't want to follow him for fear of what others would think about them. The Chosen captures this beautifully, right? You have Peter versus Nicodemus. Peter has nothing, right? Jesus comes through in this moment, and he follows Jesus. And then you have Nicodemus, right? And again, this is maybe not exactly how, how things went, right? This is just a story. But I think, it, again, it captures it beautifully. Jesus doesn't end up following Jesus at the end of season one. If you're not at the end of season one, spoiler alert, I'm so sorry. Like, I ruined it for you. Um, but... But it is what it is. But why didn't he follow him, right? In the last episode, you see some reasons, right? He has prestige. He has social status. He has wealth. He's got a lifestyle that he loves and his wife loves. He doesn't want to give it up. And so why do some follow others, or some follow Jesus, and why do others don't in the first century? It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a whole new way to view the world. This, these ideas, the idea that losing would be winning, had never been conceived, about in, had been conceived of in all of human history. This is the first time this has ever been brought up. There's a great book called Dominion. Read it. It talks about this idea. But in an upside-down kingdom, there's a whole new way to, to view the world and a whole new way to view, pe- to new view, to view people. And here's the thing. If the dominant culture doesn't value you, then the kingdom of God looks really attractive. It's what we call the gospel. It's the good news to you, right? But in the first century, if the dominant culture does value you, it's really hard for you to enter into this this kingdom. Why? Because you have to give up a lot. And it's going to radically reshape everything about your life. I'm going to bring this home to us, not only in 21st century America, but here in Midtown. But in America, if you think about who we are, we are the Roman Empire. We are the empire of the day. And when we go, when we try to find ourselves in the story of the scriptures, I know a lot of times we like to do that, right? And it's good to do that, like to find yourself in the narrative. Like if you find us in the narrative, like who am I? Like, I am the Pharisee. I'm the religious leader. I'm, I'm not the disciple, 
right? I'd like to think I am, but I'm not. I'm the Roman citizen. In their culture, in that time, I had power and privilege. In this culture, in this time, I have power and privilege. And I want to end with, with two thoughts for us and our culture and our dominant culture of today. The first one is this, that the dominant culture favors many of us in this room. And I, I know that's, it's, it's not everybody, and I'm not trying to make blanket statements, but for many of us in this room, the dominant culture favors us. See, I know a lot of you really well, and I know that there's some of you that are super intelligent, and some of you that are super talented. I will not comment on looks. But maybe there's some people in here that are also very wealthy. Maybe some of you here were born into the right families or have the right networks, right? You're good with people. You're connected to the right people. The dominant culture favors many of us in this room. Like the rich young ruler Nicodemus, this can make it difficult for us to fully embrace the kingdom of God. And I think in America, we have a little bit of a hodgepodge of values, right? And American Christianity in particular, like where we kind of value successism, we kind of overlay Christianity onto it and all that. But like the gospel radically reshapes, the kingdom of God radically reshapes all of our values. But I think these things, at least for me, and I don't, I don't even, I don't, I don't know if I have any of these, but if I do, I, I think I do. And that's the problem. But, like, it makes it hard for me to trust and depend on Jesus. But then here's the second thing that I want us to chew on. And I've been thinking about these a lot over the last two years, since, really since the pandemic. And this last one has really come up. And Carson and I were talking about this earlier this week. And I'm still putting words to this. Um, but he really helped me understand this better. Um, but the second point is this. What's an advantage in the dominant culture is a disadvantage in the kingdom of God. Let me read that again. What's an advantage in the dominant culture is a disadvantage in the kingdom of God. Whether it's intelligent or talent or looks or wealth or networks. And I say that because we can tend to put our trust and our value in these things versus the things of the kingdom of God. Paul seemed to get this idea quite well. He was one of the few people that followed Jesus who did have some of these things that we're talking about here. Like you don't write half of the New Testament and talk about things that people had not talked about ever throughout history without some kind of intelligence in the Holy Spirit. But with some kind of intelligence and talent, right? He had the right networks. And, and, but Paul seemed to understand that those things that gave him favor or advantage in this culture were actually a disadvantage. And so in Philippians 3, he says this. In Philippians 3, he's talking about, um, yeah, he's talking about identity and value. He says this, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was connected to the right people. A Hebrew of Hebrew, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
Christ. And he goes on, he says, not, you know, I consider all things a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And Paul seemed to understand that was whatever was to an advantage of him in the dominant culture held no value in the upside-down kingdom of God. In fact, he took it as far to say that he considered it all a loss for the sake of Christ. And so a couple questions here as we, as we close out. First question is this. What are the things that dominant culture values about you? Like when you look at the list, what, which, which of these do you have? Next question is, do you see these things as an advantage for you? Right? Do they get you ahead in life? Do they give you meaning and purpose and value? And then the last question is this. Do they make it hard for you to fully embrace the upside-down kingdom of God? Again, I talked about this earlier, but for me, over this past year, I've just kind of seen how the way that the dominant culture really thinks about success and what it values, how it's really, I wouldn't say seeped into my life. Like, it's been a part of my life since I was five. Like, I, I can go back and I can look at, like, how, like, I'm a big football fan, how, the, how liking the Miami Hurricanes and what they're about, like, shaped me. Or how seeing $30,000 in a trunk and being treated differently than one of the other neighborhood kids with money from a, a, an older neighbor mentor, how that shaped me. And how, like, for me, like, putting my trust and my value in these things that, in the end, like, uh, although we think they give us life, they end up leading to death. And I know for me, like, I'm, I just, I need to reevaluate and realign my life with the kingdom of God and the values that Jesus talks about. Um, as we enter into a time of communion, I want us to be reminded of what James Cone said earlier in that quote. He talks about the cross is the paradoxical, paradoxical symbol of the kingdom of God. And it's paradoxical because of this, because it inverts the world's value system with the news that the hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, that the last shall be first and the first last. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.